0: everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. Today, I've got some special guests from one of my favorite podcasts. Well, actually, let me back up. Working in commercial lumber space, well, let's call a spade a spade. We are often vilified. We must hate trees because we're cutting down forests left and right. The reality is that there's probably a stronger vested interest by the lumber business to manage our forests sustainably. They are, after all, our inventory. Years past, maybe people cut trees down with abandon, but that hasn't been that way for a long time. So many of the people I know in the lumber business actually love trees, which brings me to my guests. I have the hosts of the Completely Arbitrary podcast. That's A-R-B-O-R-T-A-R-Y. These guys have taught me more about trees than anyone I can think of. And when I walk through a forest, I'm now pretty good at identifying the trees I see, but more importantly, relating that back to the woods that come across my workbench that I work with every day. And it's really turned my woodworking on its head and made it really a lot more fulfilling. So without further ado, let's get into the show. I am I am so excited to have my two guests with me today, um, Alex Croson and Casey Clapp, host probably one of my favorite podcasts called Completely Arbitrary. And this is I like I like in this every time I've told another woodworker about Completely Arbitrary they kind of give me a weird look like, "Oh, so do they talk about like the working properties of the wood?" I'm like, "No, they talk about trees. It's all about trees and in fact neither of these guys are woodworkers. Welcome to the show. So happy to have you both.
1: Hello, thank you. Hello, yes, thank you very much and thank you for your kind words.
0: Any anybody who works with wood, eventually they start to pay attention to trees. Hopefully sooner rather than later. But I know for me personally, um, when I started working with wood, I've always been, you know, a hiker and mountain biker and an outdoorsman type person. So I've always liked trees and I've liked the forest. But like it wasn't, I didn't actually start paying attention to what tree is that like what kind of tree is that is that an ash tree an oak tree or what and starting to pay attention to leaves and bark and all that fun stuff and when I was able to connect the dots from you know my workbench which is made out of you know white ash to what an ash leaf looks like and where they grow and wow look how straight and tall that tree is that you know suddenly made my woodworking so much more valuable. Um, I liken this to, um, now I, I will I will warn you guys, I am a huge nerd <laughs> through and through. <laughs> I, I tend to fall down rabbit holes and get really nerdy really quickly. So for example, when I started fly fishing, I was like, okay, I need a bug that matches that bug that's on the water. So I, you know, I, I dug through my tackle box and found a bug that looked kind of like it. Well, Year later, I started tying my own flies. A year later, I'm taking an uh, an entomology class to like understand <laughs> what is a Hendrix, what is a Blue dun, what is a Green Drake. You know, what's the difference between a Stonefly and a Caddisfly? Um, Amazing. I like started to learn the Latin names of the bugs, and I started like taking pictures of bugs, and I started like Im- the t- tying my flies. To look at that. And it was a total rabbit hole that may not have been necessary, but it made fly fishing so much more fun, Mm. so much more fun. And I probably would have to say it probably made me much more boring to non-fly (laughs) fishermen because the conversations that I could have about the bugs got out of control. So fast forward Mm. um, while I still fly fish a lot. I am, you know, I work in the lumber industry, I am a woodworker through and through, and I now bore a bunch of people with an entirely different set of of things. Um, You know, I start throwing around Latin names of trees, and hey, look, that tree goes well in riparian areas. Uh, thank you very much, Alex and Casey, for that little term. <laughs> You're welcome. So what What I really wanted to do, I want to expose my listeners. I've got a lot of professional contractors. I've got architects. I've got weekend warrior woodworkers. Um, I've got school teachers, all kinds of people who enjoy working with wood. I want, to, uh, I want to have them take, I can't remember if it was the blue pill or the red pill in the matrix. I want to take one oh. of those pills. Or and it go down the definitely rabbit hole. Be the
1: red pill for sure.
0: Is it the red pill? All right, thank you. <laughs> I need to watch that movie again. So I let's let's just get started here. Um, completely arbitrary. How would you describe completely arbitrary, guys?
1: Ooh, Alex, I think you should do this. Oh
2: wow. Okay. Well, completely arbitrary is a pot. We say our our line that we say every intro is. It's a show about trees and other related topics. So. Each episode, we focus on one species of tree, but that conversation about you know, ID characteristics and where it grows and how it grows is a uh, kind of a, uh, a launch pad for a bigger topic to do mm. with that tree. Um, however, however related, sometimes not so much and sometimes extremely. Right, um, however unrelated. Then, <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, and yes, then I mean- we... We eventually, you know, we eventually say some some things worth saying with a lot of, uh, <laughs> with a lot of just Casey and I kind of bantering. Um, yeah, that's that's our show, and then we play a game and we do a, a, a listener question. Fantastic. Yeah,
1: and I think I can. Uh, I'll add to that a little bit in terms of the, the kind of tree side of it is that Alex is a professional musician and a audio video editor by kind of training and by work experience. And Alex and I have been friends for a very long time since high school. And whenever I have come up with some creative idea, I always bounce it off Alex. Like, you can ask Alex, he's probably like, oh yeah, Casey's given me like so many ideas that I've just been like, yeah, bud, cool. And then that's that's where it ended because he's like, not the best idea, but I'm gonna give you a thumbs up anyway. Not, and, not
2: unkindly, by the way.
1: No, no, not unkindly, no. no. <laughs> Um, but then, uh, so we were hanging out during the pandemic, and I am a professional arborist, so I love talking about trees and teaching people about trees, and I find trees to be just wildly fascinating. But from every aspect, including woodworking, I, I do woodworking. In that I, you know, built these uh, shelves out of reclaimed wood in front of me. You look at it and laugh and say, "Well, you know, a monkey could make that." And but you know, that's as that's as far as I go. I think with that, maybe I cover spoon every now and then. But the, um, the, the aspects of trees, I always uh, have had the same kind of idea where I'm like, ah, oh, I can relate this to everything. I see trees and their interactions with the, the human and non-human world, just all over the place. So I pitched the idea to Alex about making this show and he talked to another one of his friends and they're like, this is actually a really good idea because if Casey knows all these things about trees and you don't, but you guys have this relationship of, of communication and trust and just you know friendship, that it kind of came out that we, we were talking about trees in a way that I was teaching Alex something or giving him a, a, a kind of a dive into history about this thing that I'm passionate about. And he would listen and learn, but also doesn't see it from that perspective at all. So Alex has this wild ability to A, be very funny when I just let jokes go right over my head. Actually I think more <laughs> they hit me in the head and I'm like, what what, what the heck is that? And then uh, we we found that we were really able to find a a really good balance of talking about trees, but also not about trees, and people connected to that in a way that they're like, oh, wow, these people are like, uh, it's like someone's talking to me, and whenever I have this question, inevitably, Alex says, whoa, 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 hold on, Casey, what exactly did you just say? And right it's just we just found this really uh this amazing balance of making something that is uh like what you're talking about this wildly nerdy like esoteric kind of thing and bringing it to a larger audience that uh, connects to everybody else and without alex and me kind of bringing those two sides of it we just this podcast would be nothing so we ended up just finding a finding a cool balance of a podcast that does talks or talks about trees and so many things that have nothing to do with trees that it's kind of it's kind of stunning that it's even working.
0: I could not agree more. The chemistry between you guys is what makes the show. But what is I have enjoyed as a nerd is you don't dumb it down in the slightest. Like I love <laughs> that Casey's able to bring like the dendrology to life, and um, and you guys might have just heard it. Casey gets very passionate, um, <laughs> about things and he, his, his pace starts to pick up. And Alex is fantastic about saying, what did you just say? Like, what was that word? <laughs> you just said parenchyma. What the heck is parenchyma? And I still don't know how to pronounce that word, by the way, <laughs> but, um, Cause I've heard it 17 different ways, I'm but sure. you're able to, to kind of play off one another. And w- what I loved is, um, I, I still don't think I've heard every episode I'd started like, I skipped around and listened to like the most recent 10. And then I went back to the beginning and I listened to like a hundred of them. And then mm. I started jumping around again. I don't know how many you've done now because you don't number them, but you must have hit on 200 species at this point. I mean, it's a lot. All
1: right. five. Yeah. It's a lot. I do about... This is our, our third year. We're just about obviously wrapping up our third year and it would be we do about forty eight trees a year.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. So the 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 breadth of content that you've covered but what i found interesting is very early on um alex characterized himself as a tree skeptic which i absolutely love that (laughs) love that term i've used that term in my day-to-day in my business life and talking to people at a lumberyard like okay i understand you're tree skeptical and they kind of look at me like "Ooh, i like that so yeah you need to like trademark that alex because that's got legs or roots it's got roots Ooh, yeah
1: it's the other thing. There's
0: fair fair bit of punning that happens on your show, so we'll just keep that going. So yeah, anyway, we can't
1: can't get away from it,
0: right? I think the important part is now, hundreds of trees later. I don't think we can call Alex a tree skeptic anymore, nor can we mm-hmm. call him a tree noob. I think your breadth anyway. of knowledge, Alex, is is quite impressive. Um, and what you've picked up from Casey. So, um, I was kind of one of the other reasons that I wanted to get you guys here on the show because. I have a lot of people who, um, are kind of like early Alex, they were tree skeptical. Um, and they've picked up a few bits here and there, and maybe some a little tidbit of knowledge here and a little tidbit of knowledge here. And now they're kind of at a point where how do I start to like connect the dots and how do I apply this? How do I get to like the, the, um, the leaps, the intuitive leaps that, you know, a formerly trained dendrologist like Casey would be. Um, so I, I do think those perspectives are are fantastic. So let me kind of jump into this. First of all, Casey, you just called yourself an arborist. Mm-hmm. Was there, would you say there's a difference between an arborist and a dendrologist?
1: Yeah, I think so. So I okay. actually have always, um, always thought of myself as an arborist first and Um, I was actually featured on the dendrology episode of Ologies, the podcast with Allie Mm -hmm. Ward, um, I think in 2018. And um, at the time, I said that I studied dendrology because it's a a very common course in forestry uh, schools across the nation. And it essentially is tree identification, but that's kind of the course but the people who actually like teach the course and do the work, the, the, the capital D dendrologists, they're usually people I've seen studying uh, woody trees in, in every regard, but they do kind of one big tree. They say, okay, I'm gonna dive into the tulip poplar and I'm gonna learn everything there is about this woody tree and then maybe I'll do the next one when I'm done with that and so on and so forth. Uh-huh. And so I've always thought of dendrologists as people who more do the, the study of the trees in the context of the tree they're not saying okay wh- how does this tree work in this situation what is it like as a, a forestry product they're saying no no no. just i'm going to learn everything there is about this tree for so the kind of set. an
0: abstract rather let's discover yeah, exactly you know the the tulip fera. <laughs> See, yeah, exactly. I learned something. Well um in <laughs> abstract and and would it be safe to say that it's more of like a lab coat wearing type individual in a lab i rather would than, think so
1: yeah That that's at yeah. least my understanding Uh, or my Mm -hmm. interpretation, I should say. And in contrast, an arborist is someone who works with trees in urban areas, or at least around someone's house or a built structure. And they are a little bit different than kind of a, a timber person because the arborist would be working to remove a tree delicately around a house or a structure or making sure that they're cleared from telephone or power lines and planting trees, maintaining them across a, a landscape. So the goals are a little bit different that the the objective for most arborists is to keep as many big and healthy trees uh, on the landscape as possible. but. Take them down and prune them as needed, right. and that I think is it's more what I do. And I also talk about um, the biology and the implications of management and risk and all these kinds of things. And urban trees and people are kind of the the bread and butter of arboriculture. And that's how I've always really uh, really found myself, at least in in that realm.
0: Fantastic. I've actually put a lot of of emphasis in previous episodes about um, the urban canopy and. And nice. specifically urban logging. Um, yeah, Because, and and I will admit, like I, I work in a commercial lumber company. I work for a lumber mm-hmm. company that's celebrating its 225th year of business right now. Whoa. And it's very, well, we're still a small business. Like we're not a, you know, a Bailey lumber whose factory can be seen from space. You know, we're, oh we are a God. small family run business, but we just happen to have been doing it since 1798. Well, 1740, mm-hmm. but it's hard to incorporate a country or a company when you're still a colony of another country. And then you have this (laughs) war that kind of got awkward during that war thing. So yeah, we were officially incorporated in 1798, but it's a very different, you know, it's a very different world from these urban Sawyers that I I'm seeing now. And it's really opened my eyes. And in many ways, I've actually said this on my show. I think it's the future of the lumber industry, this going back to a village um, economy kind of a grassroots logging thing where you have a guy, like the mobile sawmill has really democratized the lumber business and Mm -hmm. you can buy a sawmill for a heck of a lot less than a car. You know, they can be had for a thousand dollars. You can spend $15,000 on them, maybe 25 at the upper end, but that's still substantially cheaper than most cars. So Mm -hmm. it's it's pretty easy to get your hands on a wood miser or even getting an Alaskan mill with a chainsaw, you know, or Mm -hmm. using a chainsaw to mill up a log. And this has flipped the script a little bit and allowed for, um, first of all, repurposing a waste stream, you know, instead of being turned into mulch, this log, you know, that for wherever it grew could be turned into usable lumber, which has provided a market for species that are not commercially available. Like I love to work with Catalpa but you can't find it in lumber yards because it's not yeah. really widespread. But if you go to an urban sawyer, you can find Catalpa because Catalpa grows a lot of places. Um, hickory used to have a huge market and then it kind of died off and it got replaced with, with somewhat more robust woods. That and the fact that hickory has a whole bunch of, you know, shell bark hickory and pignut hickory and all. Mm-hmm. There's, there was a lot of inconsistency and it's also a pretty knotty wood. Um, Ooh. so from a commercial perspective, it kind of fell out of favor, but hickory is a fantastic wood to work with. In fact, some historians will say hickory is the wood that built America. You know, all the ax handles were made out of hickory. So literally hickory was used to fell other trees, to, to make log cabins, etc. So here I am going down a rabbit hole here, but this <laughs> urban logging thing has now shown me that there are much smaller people that I can buy lumber from, much greater variety of woods that I can choose to work with. And I'm reminded uh, last time I was in Europe, I was in Austria and I was taking a train from Vienna all the way out to the Western side of Austria to Salzburg. Um, Alex, I too studied music. I am a musician as well. So I was oh, actually going to Mozart's birthplace. Uh, my wife and I oh were there to, to like see where Mozart started at all. But wow. as we were on this train, traveling across Austria, it gets rural very quickly. And every little town that we whizzed by, there was a sawmill, you know, and it was, you could just see like the people who were building things in that town, they went to the local Sawyer and they bought it from Steve, you know, on the corner of third and, and Mozart street. Um, and that little economy, you know, it wasn't. I'm going to go and order a bunch of cherry. I'm going to order a bunch of Scots pine. It's whatever that Sawyer had, and that Sawyer probably had Scots pine because it grows pretty heavily all across Austria. But they didn't have any hickory because mm. it doesn't grow there. So they're they're buying what was in that small um, ecosystem. I don't know if that's the right word technically. Um, and and the conservation, the sustainability side of things just kind of figured itself out because you see the supply chain right there. And if Steve, your Sawyer, goes and fells three trees, everyone in the neighborhood immediately knows it because they can see, hey, where'd that tree go? So there's accountability, but there's also like sustainability because no one wants to just go and denude the forest because that's the, you know, the village park. So it's kind of like this idea of that vegetarians are constantly throwing out where, when, you know, you just go and buy your steak under cellophane, it's different than actually going and looking into the eyes of a cow. And mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily want to go down that road because I can get kind of sensitive really quickly. But sure. what I discovered is urban logging brings it close to home and it it makes it super, super visible. And the chain of custody and the line of sight to the source becomes very, very visible. The other thing from a woodworking perspective is it's so much cooler to have built a table that like, oh, look this look at this walnut table. Yeah, that walnut grew three blocks over and one block down, um, and it was there for however many years, you know, And I bought it from a woman who, you know, it came down for whatever reason. You have that story that you can mm-hmm. connect that to. Um, I had a guest on the show a while back who, Um, was able to procure a very large red oak tree, a very large red oak tree. And it had grown on the property of this historic mansion um, in his town. Well, it turns out that was a place where like when presidents came to town, that's where they stayed. And um, President Taft signed some bill into law, like in a room looking out on that tree. So there was this cool connection. He went to the owners the the curators of this historic museum and said hey can i can i buy that tree from you and they bartered uh, an idea where he would take the tree and he could make some furniture um and it would go back in the museum so now the tree that cast shade over the window that Taft signed this thing into law will now be a desk in the room where Taft signed the thing into law. And that kind of story is is so cool to be able to connect the dots like that. So this is sorry, this is me getting off on a tangent, but this is me saying the urban logging, the urban Sawyer thing. It's the future. Um, it's it's. It's really exciting and the yeah. people who use the wood can connect to it, can understand it. And immediately the biggest thing in the lumber business that people talk about is, is, you know, conservation and sustainability and FSC and certification programs like that become moot now because you're buying your wood from down the street, like where it grew down the street, not in some far flung region of the world. And it, it totally changes things. Um, and to Casey's world, we have the ability to not only say, okay, we took down that tree. What are we going to replace it with? And hopefully not just what's been done in the past where, Hey, let's plant this. Cause it grows super, super fast. You know, um, can anybody say Dutch elm disease? Mm, <laughs> Everybody loved right? the elms and <laughs> they grew like crazy and boy, they grew up fast. And then they all disappeared and suddenly we had no forests anymore. So now, uh, it, we have the ability to to examine like our micro climate, our micro political socioeconomic thing, and what would make sense to replace that tree and let that grow up to replace whatever tree we just removed. And it really, it's really exciting. Um, it's this circular economy that's now created because we're repurposing what should have been thrown into a landfill or what is being thrown into a landfill or ground in a mulch, turning into something that can be used somewhere else you know as as furniture as spoons or whatever and then we're replacing it with something that actually belongs there that actually might do things like alleviate urban heat island and things like that in in that particular mm-hmm. area so
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, and then oh, go ahead Alex. oh i'm
2: curious what is the what is the price point difference between sort of a locally sourced wood and the same wood that you would get commercially that's a or tough that question. Point, to it's hard. It's hard to find. It's hard well, to find that local wood commercially.
0: Yeah, and that's why it's a tough question because <laughs> it's always a supply and demand type thing. So, if it you know, let's go back to using catalpa. You know, we, where else are you going to buy it? Like you're not really going to buy it anywhere else. Um, so technically, that Sawyer can charge really whatever they want for it because you don't have a whole lot of options. There's where the monopoly thing comes from. I, in large part, find that these are pretty good people um, and. They know that if they price it ridiculously they're going to lose a customer so it just doesn't really happen that way but then there's also a lot of shades of gray you know when you're buying lumber what are you buying like is it dry to what you know is it kiln dry to what percent Um, is it free of bugs i don't know how long was it in the kiln um is it certified free of bugs does it in other words have a um uh, a phytosanitary certificate or a heat treatment certificate, which those are administered by um, US Fish and Wildlife. Um, this really only matters if you're selling it commercially. And technically you don't have to do those things. The good business says that because if somebody buys your wood and it has you know, powder post beetles in it and that gets in their house, mm-hmm or termites or something like that, you could be liable. But if you got a heat Mm -hmm. treatment certificate, meaning it was held at a certain temperature in a kiln for 24 hours, then you are essentially absolved of liability. That doesn't mean the bugs can't come back later. But there's so many different things, like how much transformation was done to that wood. You know, you can buy a log and logs are actually very inexpensive despite what the many people who email me and say, I have a log, do you want to buy it? You know, and they want to sell it to you for $3,000. And I'm like, <laughs> you're <laughs> out of your mind. Like, well, so, I know that this wood is worth $8 a board foot. And I did a calculator online that says I have 35 board feet in this log. So therefore it should be eight times 38. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> when it's in log form, it's only about five cents a board foot depending upon the wow. species, because there's so much labor. You, you have to, sure. you have to saw that Thank log. Well, first of all, you have to debark the log. You have to saw the log, and depending on how you saw it, the yield from a log of usable lumber can be quite low, depending upon the species, certainly. But, um, and the grade that you're trying to saw, you could get 30% yield and 70% waste. Now, waste is a kind of a bad word because waste can be turned into a lot of different things it can be lower grade mm-hmm. lumber, it can be mulch, um, even sawdust can be repurposed. Um, for instance, uh, our yard is, is, um, all of our dry kilns are powered by our sawdust. So our dry kilns are technically off the grid because we provide the fuel for them. Um, that's, that's not patting ourselves on the back. That's very common practice, by the way, (laughs) I want that come off, come off wrong. Like, Ooh, look at us. Look how fancy we are. Um, but that price will, will vary all across the board. Has that log been sawn kind of through sawn into slabs? so you have a live edge on both both sides in other words you have that that basically a cross section of a tree that's much easier to saw but is also kind of sort of unique like if i've sawn a, a an oak board and i've got a now 24 inch wide piece well that could be repurposed into a really cool looking coffee table so that can be sold for pretty 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 penny um mm-hmm if you were to take that same slab and solid and dimensional lumber, you might actually net more in the long run, just because it's a, it's a volume thing and maybe you've hit a better grade. And if the grade is higher, you can, your market will allow for a higher price. So yeah, unfortunately, Alex, that's not an easy question to answer. It's a lot of, yes. it depends. Um, sure. It's also one of the reasons I think I probably have 10 episodes <laughs> about how to buy lumber and what to look for. Right. Um, and what dictates the price. The, the biggest issue I have with the lumber business is, um, they tend to keep their cards so close to the vest and they use a lot of, um, technical terms. Just, I mean, one of my recent episodes was entitled, uh, RIP board foot, like the volume <laughs> unit board foot is so stupid. Like it makes no it's sense really to use that unit anymore. It's really hard to
1: conceptualize, anymore. isn't
0: it? <laughs> yeah. Cause it's not a cubic foot. Um, and yet nope. it is a volumetric unit. Um, it's really something that made sense hundreds of years ago. It makes sense to some effect today in buying buying bulk, like buying truckload volumes of lumber. You need to yeah. have a, an easy volume thing. But for most of us, buying it, you know, you're buying it by the square foot or the linear foot or by the piece. And the fact that the lumber industry continues to perpetuate the board foot only promotes confusion. And mm-hmm. when your customers confuse, they tend to be bitter. And they, they're always thought, oh, I just got screwed over by the lumber guy. Um, mm. And sometimes that's the case, but most of the time it's not. Most of the time they're pretty good people, um, but there's just this lost in translation thing where you go to the checkout and you have no idea how much you're going to pay. And lumber's expensive. So you end up paying two $300 and you're like, what did I just buy? And did I get ripped yeah. off? I don't know. you know. So pricing is a real hot button in that whole um in the, the whole kind of spectrum of lumber.
1: Yeah. And to add to that in, in terms of urban lumber as, a, as an arborist, one of the biggest issues that we've run into is the logistics of getting out a big part of a tree. So like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm looking at a, a large birch tree that's planted out uh, just outside my window on the other side of the street and it's growing directly next to a large parking lot. So you got good access there, but there's, uh, electric lines on one side of it. There's a house on another side of it, and it's growing right next to a a fence, a chain link fence, like basically kind of underneath it as it's expanded out. So in order to have this tree and any other tree that's growing around in an urban area be suitable for lumber, the, they would have to get a crane and line that up and then line up a someone to take that log and then move it over to the the kind of shop area to have it be processed. But most arborists don't have that kind of space or or time to have that that side of their their uh, their business. So they would have to have a giant amount of coordination with somebody else, make sure all your schedules lined up, and then make sure that you have a tree that that person wants and they have to be able to cut it in a certain length so that it can be pulled up with a crane and then set onto a truck, but they also can't hit a house. They can't hit these power lines. They can't necessarily cut it where they want to because they can't put their saws into the chain link fence. So all these like teeny tiny little logistic things end up adding up and then often that's what makes the costs so much higher. So you can have a perfectly good tree, but if you can't get it out in a in a way that's acceptable and reasonable, then you find that you're essentially uh, just causing yourself more trouble than it's literally worth. And then the trees are oftentimes just cut down piece by piece by piece, which are, you know, suitable for the smallest, maybe three foot or shorter kind of parts. And that doesn't get you a whole lot.
0: Right, yeah, I, I've had um, conversations a lot of times with uh, tree removal companies, um, and many of them are arborists themselves. Mm-hmm. And there's, they're often, it's, it's often not worth their time to fell, you know the, the the log as as a single yeah. entity to bring down that entire bowl as one piece. A, it's it's sometimes requires a crane. Um, just felling that that large log can actually be quite traumatic if there are underground pipes and things. I mean the the yeah. the force generated seismically when that tree falls will crack a lot of pipes. Um, so it's it's really an issue that has to be concerned. So that the best thing to do is buck that log into smaller pieces you know, from the top down and you're dropping three foot sections or whatever. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to handle them, move them. A skid steer can pull them out of there. So yeah, anytime you're trying to remove the log as, as a single entity that gets dramatically more expensive. Um, and if you can't get a crane in there, like I have a, um, I had a Norway, uh, spruce in my backyard Mm -hmm. that had to come down. Um, frankly, it was killing everything under it. Um, it was just Mm -hmm, dropping leaves and taking out the the dogwood next to it was dying and the cherry on the other side of it was dying. And, um, honestly it was, it was huge. It it had been here since the neighborhood and it was kind of ugly, I admit. Um, so we went to take it down and I had, Uh, I had had to take out a red Oak a couple years earlier that had a, an anthrax variant and it was dying and it was Mm. a big enough tree that I was worried that it was going to fall on my house. So I had that taken out. That was on the other side of the yard that took, I think it was about $800 to have that removed. Um, big, 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 big tree. It was probably a 70 to 80 year old red Oak. Um, Mm. and I've made a lot of things out of that red Oak, by the way. Um, but the, the Norway spruce was quite a bit smaller, but it was on the other side of the yard where there was no gate on the fence. So in other words, you would have to, you couldn't get access to it. So the red Oak that was close to the gate cost $800. The, the spruce, so like half the size of tree, but further away from the gate cost $1,200 to remove simply because of access, because of the amount of manual labor that would be required um, to just like use a wheelbarrow and and move everything out. Whereas if you could back a truck in and the truck had the crane on it, they could move it out of there. But because mm-hmm. there wasn't access, it was twice the price for actually half the tree. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that, that took a little bit of explaining when I saw the price tag, but I, eventually I got it. But yeah, those are, those are a lot of things that can kind of uh, mess with that whole pricing contingent yeah. or question. So Alex, I'm curious now that, like here you are hundreds of species in at this point. Um, I've been, uh, how do I say this without sounding condescending? Well, no, let's just call it. I've been very impressed by the, the knowledge that you have gained and the knowledge now that like in recent episodes, I'll hear you make comparisons to something you talked about in a previous episode. And um, K- Casey continues to make me laugh when he's always very complimentary. He's like, good job, Alex. Well done. You've learned stuff. He's, but, he's the proud parent of the podcast. Yeah, that's exactly the way to describe it. So for somebody who um, comes from a non-tree background, a tree skeptic, um, what advice would you give people on starting to like, begin their journey on tree identification? What resources have you found or more importantly there's lots of tree books and there's tree apps and things like that but like when you go out and start looking at trees now what are you looking at um and what have you found to be useful to identify a tree and kind of at least get you in the ballpark
2: sure well we we often tout the uh the david allen sibley guide to trees which is sort of on the table right here yeah (laughs) i'm looking at it right now too <laughs> um, <clears throat> that is sort of, I mean, that's sort of become the, uh, religious text of our podcast, <laughs> but, um, you know, it has its, it, it has its uses and then it has some areas that it's a little harder to use if you're trying to ID trees. Um, I think it's a great kind of like sit back and I mean flip through a few pages i am gonna i speaking of condescending this i i'm gonna call it a coffee my coffee table book right <laughs> um where i just sort of i just sort of flip through it to uh you know read little bits and pieces and i use it as reference a lot when we're talking on the podcast um
0: it's a very pretty book of, too the illustrations oh, are just gorgeous. lovely so yeah it's funny
2: yeah i mean flip. this this david allen sibley is just an amazing man um just a a fount of knowledge about birds and trees and uh an incredible
0: artist um yeah i I have his bird books too (laughs) my wife is a is a birder so yeah that's it's actually where i came across um sibley first was through like the birding world and i was like oh yeah he's got a book on trees got to check that out
2: yeah it was kind of a shock to find out that he was a a birder you know first and foremost um and that his like side gig was making this incredible tree book um love it but I, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna plug our podcast here because my journey of, you know, from like season one, Alex, I'll call him, uh, where I, I knew basically nothing about trees, um, to now where I have I have a uh, you know compared to where I was, I have a pretty substantial understanding of trees and I can ID a lot of trees. Mm-hmm. Um, and how I understand how they work and, um, you know, what to look for and that my journey has just been, uh, the 130 odd episodes of the podcast. Um, so if somebody listened from the beginning to now, they would know, uh, precisely as much as me. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean that, that, that would be a good way to get started. Um, I will say my, my sort of, I, my, my approach to ID is, um, finding kind of the one thing, like the most unique thing about the tree and really latching onto that and be like, okay, at least I have, you know, the Douglas fir cones, the little bracts coming out of the cones. Right. That is a, that is a great example of this unique, interesting characteristic it has. You may not, you may not ID a, a, a novice or an intermediate, uh, a, a tree enthusiast may not be able to ID a Douglas fir from, the bark or from the, you know, overall morphology or the needles. But if you see that cone and you remember the story of the cone, you immediately can recognize that tree. Um, so to me, I think every tree has sort of maybe not every tree. Most trees have one either unique or interesting quirk about their form um whether it's like you know the sassafras leaf which looks like a mitten um or the douglas fir cone or the ponderosa pine bark that's another great one um so finding that one thing to latch on to i think is really uh really helpful
0: i think that's great yeah because as much as sibley is fantastic it's kind of daunting like if you have no idea like maybe you know okay it's an evergreen <laughs> it's like well what do i do with right. that like yeah how do i go hard from there to
2: narrow down in that book like if you if you, it's hard to know where to start in order to narrow down
0: right um yeah well i'm i'm glad that um you uh said listen completely arbitrary because that was going to be my <laughs> answer because um, it is it is very much a cumulative thing and i do think that um, this is the same thing with birding actually too, because when I first, my wife first took me out, I'm like, it's a bird, it's yellow, like, okay, great. You know, or more right. importantly, it's brown because they're all brown. Like it's a brown bird. Um, it has feathers. It's, a, it's another kind of brown bird and it has a beak, you know, but you start to like latch onto, like you said, those unique things, or you start to get a feel for sizes, um, and you can once you have that general idea, you can start to kind of go from there. So you'll look at it, and and like the, the overall silhouette or morphology uh, of the tree is kind of okay. Well, that tells me it's in maybe this area. So then you pull up Sibley, and because he's got it organized, you know, by essentially families or usually by genre and sometimes um and it can actually be really beneficial so I, i really like that finding something unique like the shape of the leaf or maybe the the fruit or um whatever uh like yeah i'm looking at a sycamore outside my window and that kind of splotchy bark color of the sycamore um immediately like every time i see them now i can identify it absolutely because of the the just the way that bark looks
2: Right. It's sure. almost like a, a, a visual, uh, a visual mnemonic device. Yeah. Like as long as you it. can remember that thing and what it means, you can ID, ID that tree. And I will say, I mean, repetition helps a lot. Like anything, you know, it's, I had the luxury of it being my job to talk about trees every week. Um, yeah. so while, while most of my knowledge is, uh, accidental, it is, uh, certainly a product of consist- consistency.
1: Right. I, I love that. that i don't think there's anything accidental here alex
2: <laughs> incidental maybe yeah incidental. Okay,
1: there, you <laughs> there you go that's great
0: well one of the one of the reasons when i first reach out to you because we've been trying to make this happen for a while and we've had all yeah. kinds of little things get in the way but um i went to michigan on a road trip uh, a couple of years ago and um You know, anytime I'm on the road, I'm looking at trees or stopping at museums about, you know, sawmills and things like that. And of course, my wife was with me. She's like, let's go watch this bird. So those came together in a little Venn diagram. Um, And we were in, um, I guess we call it the upper part of the Mitten of Michigan, not the upper peninsula, but very close to it. And there is this incredibly rare warbler up there called the Kirtland's Warbler or the Jack Pine Warbler. And we signed up, we went to the the local, the state park where there is, and there was a naturalist there, and they were going to do, every morning they would do like a guided trip out to see the jackpine warbler because it's one of the rarest warblers, at least in North America, if not the world. Um, But there was this great story about how you can go to this area of the forest in Michigan, and even though it's a super rare bird, you can pretty readily see them. Um, and this got into a bunch of different questions about, well, why, why is the, why is the bird so rare? And then why is it so easy to find in this tiny little area? And what I discovered is it was the perfect, um, well, accident, if you will, where forestry, specifically industrial managed forests helped to revive a species kind of by accident and then once they figured out what was going on the naturalists and the silviculturalists or really the foresters the, the lumberjacks got together and said hey we can help each other and we can make this work so um here's the the the, the story in abstract is the the jack pine warbler it it makes its nests on the ground um, it's not up in the treetop type bird and the early trees and this is i think casey you can correct me on this but it's pretty typical for uh softwoods uh evergreens um Mm -hmm. conifers to uh to grow kind of really close together and then around the two-year-old mark they start to drop their lower branches um, because yeah. they've, well, I, they've grown up enough, I think, that they, they're getting their nutrients from a proper canopy, right?
1: Um, sure, well, not, not in the nutrients, but they do get the, the light, so they get their, the light, their energy. Yeah. So it, it depends on uh, a lot about the species, their shade tolerance and things like that. But for the most part, yeah, once you reach what we call closed canopy um, in a early succession habitat, and this uh, is the same for any broadleaf tree as well, Once those trees start growing up, say they're five feet away on average from each other, then as soon as they reach their branches out and connect in touch, then that closes the canopy and then they start growing up faster than they grow out. And then everything below starts to get shaded out. So it could be that in jack pine, I know that they tend to grow very closely together. Same thing with lodgepole out here, two very Mm -hmm. closely related species, so that of course makes sense. They will uh, grow very quickly in what we call dog hair thick uh, stands. And then slowly but surely, all the the trees that don't quite get enough energy time tend to fall out. And then you have a lot of little dead sticks with a lot of big living sticks that are so rude.
0: Right. So what was happening is as these trees got older, the the base of the trunks were becoming more exposed because that, that thickness was falling away. You know, some natural selection was causing some of the more sickly trees to, to not make it. And that was providing less coverage, less shelter for the jackpine nesting habitat. Mm-hmm. Um the the forest was allowed to progress on its own. There was no logging, no cutting down happening, and essentially the forest matured enough that there was no longer any shelter for this nesting to happen. So the warblers were starting to die out. It was, and I don't remember where the what the catalyst was, but there was an area that was allowed to be clear cut. And We'll get into that in a second. Um, and they broadcast seeded it, you know, so you had the clumps growing up, and um, that new growth of trees started to provide shelter again, and the warblers immediately started nesting there again, and they started to see an increase in the warbler habitat because at this point the the warblers it was it was known that they are they're almost gone. So there was a lot of people trying to ornithologists trying to figure out how to make this work. And suddenly they started, they made that connection. Oh, they don't have the proper nesting habitat, which in hindsight, it seems like, duh, like, why didn't you think of that? But I imagine it probably wasn't that easy in the moment. But they then <laughs> discovered that now that we have this younger growth of trees, this under two-year-old trees with this shelter, there was more nesting going on. So as the, those trees began to grow up and the um, habitat, the nesting habitat died off, they started to see that correlation. So then they said, we need to create a better nesting habitat here. So they did a small, uh, I would call it a selective clear cut, um, mm-hmm. and they allowed for more growth, which allowed for more nesting of warblers. So today, as it exists, it's apparently, according to the Audubon Society, it's like the most miraculous recovery story like in, the, in written history of birds. Um, they are no longer endangered, um, but they are very, like the range is tiny, tiny, tiny. Um, and they, they pretty much stay in that range. Unlike a lot of birds that go up to the Arctic for, for breeding and things, they pretty much stay right there in Michigan. And you can go to this little area of Michigan and see Jack pine warblers, Kirtland's warblers, who's on pin on what, who you talk to they're everywhere now, and they are rebounding in a a rapid rate. And that's because the foresters, and this is all state run lands, but they have been allowed to manage through a rotation, a selective clear cut and, um, and rotate through based upon the years of the trees. And it's interesting when you drive through uh, Hartman State Park up there, you can be driving along and there'll be trees, you know, 20 feet tall, on one side of the car and you look at the other window and there's trees three feet tall. And then like you just suddenly change into a new area where the trees go from two feet tall to six feet tall. And then they'll go from six feet tall to 12 feet tall. And then they'll drop back down to like a clear cut region. And from, you know, from the air, it's very kind of checkerboard looking. They've got this very, very specific acreage or hectares depending on who you talk to that are in a certain stage. So it's, it's, kind of sort of clear cutting, but it's very small areas so that they've got selective clear cuts with shelter wood kind of all around it to allow these trees to grow up. And they continue to broadcast seed so that the trees grow in clumps in order to promote the jack pine warbler here. So what I find interesting and what I was curious from you guys, because you've had episodes talking about logging and not just you, but a lot of people really are down on the whole clear cut thing. Like clear cutting is is a silvicultural method of the past, but it seems like in this particular instance, it was almost necessary in order to manage this particular ecosystem. And I kind of love it. I kind of love the fact that here are loggers and ornithologists who are locking arms and showing that you don't necessarily just want to leave the forest alone, let it do its own thing, because I think that's kind of a general perception, but actual managed forestry can not only promote sustainability, but it can actually be good for the rest of the flora and fauna in in the neighborhood, if you will.
1: Yeah, yeah, in, in, um, I and mean, I know Alex certainly has thoughts on this. I'll start out and Alex, uh, jump in whenever you feel, um, but this is, a, it's kind of an interesting, um, an interesting topic because you can approach it from a lot of different angles and you can make something good or bad from almost any, any side of it. Yeah, right. And there is a lot of conceptions about what is a good forest, what is not a good forest. I mean, a lot of people aren't even familiar with a forest versus a plantation. But one mm-hmm. of the biggest things is the way we manage our land now is essentially just gotten rid of fire and jackpine forests historically were really really dependent on fire so yeah. fires would come through and a lot of these warblers you would find them only in areas that had burned in the last you know one or two decades because that's where the habitat was just right for them and then as the trees got too big then like as you noted they would just disappear so when we took fire out of the landscape, and most of this happened as um, the, the, the West was slowly taken over, just the whole continent was taken over from uh, colonizers coming over from uh, Europe and other places. And right. it ended up causing um, a change in the, the way that the managed landscape kind of looks so the native peoples managed with fire and were far more active in the stewardship of the land than we really have given credit for and just now over the last maybe 10 or 15 years people are really being more much more vocal and science is finding like wow there's actually a bunch more management about trees even a study just came out in the amazon recently that said um we can actually find how how many uh culturally modified parts of the forest um, exist because they can measure and find certain trees and certain uh, lidar patterns in the ground. And they say, wow, there's people that have been here doing a lot of different kinds of forestry things for thousands and thousands of years. So we're just now realizing and kind of coming to terms with the fact that we didn't have this untrammeled land that uh, we are kind of preserving. There's always people here and they're always doing uh, this kind of management, or at least actively involved with the land for one reason or another. And so now, when because we uh, have changed our entire kind of political associations with the land, and we've also changed our views of fire, we can't just let it go wherever it wants to go anymore. We now yeah. have to have other tools and clear cuts in this instance, are really the best use for it. But a lot of folks down in Alabama, I'm finding also, all over the country are really saying, wow, we can really use different silvicultural techniques and fire to open up prairies and different habitats because forests, though they're wonderful and good and they have a lot of positive attributes, they're not necessarily what the dominant forest type used to be because fire was way more prevalent everywhere all the time. So the the warbler is is that perfect case where we have been able to say, hey, instead of using the instead of using the uh, the fire the way we used to, why don't we use this one silvicultural method and fire where possible and recreate this? But then, uh, like you noted, foresters and conservationists say, hey, actually, yeah, this is the right proper management for this other um, this other product or this other goal which is the the warbler habitat and in terms of uh using it as forestry that you know the 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 objectives are just a little bit different
0: sure well what i find interesting also is you just said it is finding a different product where um you know foresters those who are looking you know who treat forests as crops essentially um they're they're not all not everything is made to be lumber you know, mm-hmm. sometimes it's a pulp, you know, sometimes they're making, you know, using the wood fiber for certain things. Um, there's a bunch of different products. And actually, I, this is one of the things I love about uh, some of the British silvicultural technique. Well, not just Britain, but like coppicing in general, mm. where there are certain, oh, man, I can never remember the name of this. But there's a certain type of fence that is made in Britain for um, controlling sheep herds. And it specifically needs kind of bendable sapling type thickness of of trees. Well, you don't wanna just cut down a bunch of saplings. So they coppice them. So you get this strong root base and they let all those little um, coppiced like little sapling links and they chop those down and it grows back really, really quickly. You think about how fast a sapling grows. So almost, I think it's just about annually, you can you can compass this and then you create this yeah. interwoven like lattice that is a specific type of fence and I'm gonna remember the name of it because it's a really cool, very like British sounding term. <laughs> I'm of, sure. Yeah, we'll um,
1: we'll look into it too. That sounds fascinating.
0: But that type of thing where in every stage of the 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 tree's life there is a product that can be made from it in some instances you can make a product and still keep the main part of the tree alive other instances you're you're cutting it back but you know rather than felling this you know 40 year old tree and using it for paper for pulp that would make much more sense to use it for lumber Um, and managing that type of tree requires a totally different silvicultural method to do it Mm-hmm. It's, it's one of the things that I have a lot of conversations because you get people doing restoration work and they pull a stud out of a hundred year old home and they look at the growth rings on this two by four and they're like, oh, my God, they don't make them like they used to. And my response is, thank goodness. Like, why are we using this old growth material for studs? They get covered up with lath or sheetrock. And actually, the softwood is stronger, like the wider space, of the growth rings. It's the exact opposite of the hardwood. You know, The closer space the growth rings on hardwood, the stronger the tree is. The softwood, because it doesn't have pores, and, well, tracheids, but whatever, yeah. um, the, the, the wider spread those growth rings are, the stronger structurally the softwood is. So if you want a strong wall, you want studs that are grown fast. So most stud there are companies out there that do nothing but make studs or maybe at most they make a two by six. Most Uh of what they're making is two by fours. And generally they get two to maybe three two by fours out of a tree. Um, And they're just they're just cutting them right down the pith. So you think about it, you need a very small, very, you know, small diameter tree in order to do that. But if you yeah. manage it, you can get them to grow really straight, first of all, through, you know, mm-hmm. just pruning and with the way they're spaced and getting just the, amount, the right amount of light that they grow straight up and they regenerate very, very quickly. Whereas in the past, when you saw these old studs, they were just, you know, felling trees at random and getting whatever they could get out of it. And you were getting these like beautiful, full two inch thick by four, four inch thick studs that were, you know, hundred year old trees. And it kind of yeah. breaks your heart because it's like, what a waste that could have been. Yeah. Not only just the tree and cutting it down, but it could have been like some glorious lumber that could have been turned into a tabletop, not hidden behind sheetrock.
1: Yeah, and that's that's kind of a funny thing. Um, like Alex and I both very very much enjoy wood, and one of our uh, our friends, a friend of the podcast. Um, built a table actually for Alex um, which was so sweet he's a, he's a good friend of ours and it was it, we just brought up that Alex needed a table and he had a project and he ended up showing each bit of the wood um, do you remember Alex what how many different species he had in there?
2: I think it was like five or six unfortunately the only one I can remember is Hawthorne because we did an yeah, episode nice. on Hawthorne and talk talk about them being fairy trees and right. I I very casually said uh, wow I'd love something made of Hawthorn Hawthorne and then a couple weeks later uh, he brought it over
0: <laughs> yeah in, you know funny that, uh... funny story before you go too far there I I almost I almost sent you a pen made out of Hawthorne that I had oh, turned wow. out of Hawthorne, but it was Good one way. of those things where I listened to that episode like maybe two years after it came out. I was kind of like, yeah, this might be weird. <laughs> I should oh, have done no. it. I, no,
2: I, I should I do it anyway. <laughs> gifts anytime.
0: Yeah. Hawthorne's fantastic, wonderful, work to work. Oh, anyway, sorry, yeah. Casey. Please carry. Oh, me.
1: that's that's totally all right. It um, it it works out. I think that our our today our our objective of how to manage our, our different forests are, it's like the, the objectives are expanding quite a bit. And I think that's where um, there's there's room for everything um, to fit in into this larger collective of how how we are working with our land. Because now we are realizing, oh, well, there's actually quite a bit more value in these large trees growing in forest systems for other things that aren't necessarily humans but also we go out there and we get water from it and we have all these ecosystem benefits that come from these things we have climate change that these trees are helping to alleviate but then we also still want wood and we love working with wood and it's one of the most incredible materials that have ever been in existence so you find that and it's uh, renewable it grows on trees so as as we're like going through this, everyone's like, wow, we can we can we can do all this at once. We can chew gum and walk at the same time here. And we can give higher value to something that is better standing than like you're saying, be turned into a a stud. And then we can go say, okay, but we're gonna manage this area as a crop because we also still need those studs. So let's maybe yeah. separate these and, and work really well. And I think it's just now we're we're going through um Kind of, a, actually, I think Bill Clinton said this that the times were changing in the timber wars out here in the West, and it was just this rough kind of period of of a change in value, and I think we're still in that kind of uh, tailspin where we are figuring out, okay, we've swung way over to one side, now that pendulum is swinging back to a different side. And we're just waiting for that to kind of mellow out and find a nice uh, a nice middle ground where where we're all managing things that uh, are for many different purposes and have a lot of different value. and we have to kind of work work with our society. and you know that what is that? That triangle of um, social, economic, and environmental. Uh-huh. let's make sure that we can balance each one of those things. and then once we do, hopefully everyone will be either happy or everyone will be just a little bit sad uh, because that's how compromises work. Right.
0: (laughs) I like that. Yeah. Everyone's just a little bit sad. They're not real sad, but as long as everybody's (laughs) equally sad, we're fine. Right. I did have kind of one, I get this question a lot. um, And rather than reading a bunch of emails that all basically say the same thing, I wanted to paraphrase about nine different people here. Um, I get a lot of people who end up with either inheriting some land or buying some land and as a woodworker, they're very interested in managing it for a future timber, but then mm. also very, very concerned about like, I don't, you know, it's my land. I, I wanna maintain the forest for the forest beauty. So mm-hmm. um, this kind of falls into that urban canopy, regardless of whether it's, you know, suburban or rural or whatever, it's managing a small plot of land with, um, you know, the goal of keeping it pretty, but also possibly being able to harvest it in some respect. And mm-hmm. what a lot of these people will write in and tell me is they've gone out and they started to identify trees, and they're finding just this. First of all, massive variety. Like they didn't expect it to be so many different species within this one mm-hmm. acre of land. And then when they start to do some digging, like like when you go to the, the the nursery and they have the different zones, and this this plant makes the best sense to be planted in this area. This is a sun uh, shade tolerant. This one requires full sun. They're they're doing this for the same thing with trees, and they're discovering well, why in the heck do I have honey locust here? Like it shouldn't be here um, yeah. or, or something into that effect. So what do you think, like what is a good way to kind of assess like the plot of land? And if I wanted to say, take down the bad trees, I don't know, that's the kind of a bad way to put it, but like the trees that maybe shouldn't belong there, does that mm-hmm. make sense? Or, you know, should we give them a shot? Or more importantly, what's a good way to figure out like what a healthy plot of forest for my region should be? Like, how does one even start with that?
1: Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a really good question. And I would, I first need to defer to a local, a local forester, honestly. Okay. Um, we also get these questions all the time. Alex can certainly attest to this where we get very specific questions. And in fact, some people will say, Hey, I have a backyard here. What kind of yeah. tree should I plant?
0: <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm paraphrasing because that's how most yeah. <laughs> of these emails start. <laughs>
1: right. I'm in Georgia
0: so, and yeah, this zip what code tree should I plant This
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a big challenge, but, um, um, the I always like to say, you know, I, I am one person in one spot. I'm very locally familiar with what to do here. But I would even still defer to a um, a small woodlot or a uh, a small woodlot forester or an extension forester. They're usually okay. really really good. They know things very well, and you pay your taxes that pays them, so you can really get some good quality stuff from someone who knows your area and knows what uh, your objectives could be and how to accomplish them. Um, okay. But all that to say, the first thing I would say is is come up with a few succinct objectives for what you are hoping to do on your land. If you are looking to um, have multiple different things and just write them down, say, okay, these are my objectives that I want. Prioritize those. And then if there is a timeline, like say a rotation period for how much um, or when you want to remove your trees or... or cut them so that you can pay for your kid's college or something like that. Um, consider that your objectives and your timeline are certainly gonna be connected. If it's just make an old growth forest, then your timeline is forever, essentially. Yeah. Um, the second thing I would do is go out and like your your folks are doing, they're looking at their trees, they're identifying them, they're coming up with an inventory. And then once you get your inventory, you know what the the land looks like. You know where the wetter spots are, the drier spots. Maybe there's a certain soil or rock type that um, pulls different trees in from different places. but if the if all the trees are are native species, more or less, then they're all going to be growing because that's where they're going to be growing. They maybe were planted, but if it's a woodlot area, it's more likely that they just happen to grow there because something was logged many years ago and then they sold the lot as a residential area or it's just kind of out in the rural part of the world and you have now this land. My best advice is to deal with what you have and get rid of the invasive species. So if you're down in the south, for instance, get rid of your calorie pair. If you're over here in the west, then there's a, multiple different um, species that you you might want to cull so that you don't need to worry about them overall taking over. But after that, the easiest thing is to split everything up into different quadrants and say, or not necessarily quadrants, but just um, stratified zones to say, okay, this is the zone that has the best access and the best soil for big trees. I'm gonna make that into the timber area. Over here, there's a stream and a lot more diversity of plants. There's some flowering trees. There's a lot more lowland areas. I don't want to drive trucks in there. So that I'm going to use as more of a park-like area. And I'm going to maybe put a path in, take a tree out so that I can get some more light over here and manage that more as something that your objective is whatever's already there. And then you Hmm. can do that for all these other different spots. And you don't need to paint broad brush strokes over the whole thing. You can break it up into the smallest amounts that is uh, reasonable for you, and then manage it like that, um, working not only off of your proactive kind of like, let's think through this, how are we gonna access it, what are we, what are we gonna get from it, as well as making sure that you are using what you have. It would be foolish to cut down all your trees just to replant, because everyone's gonna die before those trees actually become large trees. So yeah. it's important to say, okay, here's what I have, here's what I'm working with, maybe it's not perfect, but I can still plant things and I can still manage it to um, basically just attach or attack those objectives over a, a few years of time. That way you uh, you know what you're working for, you know what you have. And then after that, you're just uh, choosing which trees to plant, which ones to cut and where you're going to put your yurt so you can live out there.
0: <laughs> I like that. Nice. Yeah, that's actually, I really love the way you think about that. Like the long-term objective and I love the idea of breaking it into, you know, little well, whatever you want to call it segments quadrants yeah, right? stratified areas for the oh, I'm glad to hear it. yeah that's that
1: an old forestry uh term that um or section that they use where you have a big piece of land you stratify it so you know what you have and you can kind of split it up and manage them the to be the most appropriate management scheme for that that specific spot fantastic
0: Well, I am blatantly stealing this next area from your show. Um, You guys often play games on your show, and I always love that. And I'm usually shouting at my car radio answers most (laughs) of the time. Um, So I'm really excited to be able to welcome both Alex and Casey to my own version of trivia. Uh, We'll call this one Trees to the Stars, Famous Trees. So oh, wow. Okay. We're All gonna, right. We're gonna score this. So the first one to answer gets the point on this. So Ooh, Alex, you're going down, Alex. Casey, no
2: googling, Casey. What? Yeah, no,
0: no googling. No googling. This is so unfair. Question number one. Wow. Okay. These Canadian rockers think oaks don't care and maples are revolutionaries. Rush. Oh, well, you got oh, well it. Well done. Well done. I was
1: gonna I was gonna buzz in, but I couldn't. Okay. Oh. Uh,
2: there is trouble. Sorry, can, in the we, forest. Yeah, can, we, can we answer before the uh before the question is oh, heck yeah, totally yeah. said? I okay. probably had okay. you a
0: okay. Canadian Rocker, didn't I? Oh uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One of my favorite songs. I actually started an episode singing that song. so
1: yeah, Oh it's so good. good. The trees, I love that song. Uh
0: number two. This fictional tree when tragically felled, is calculated to contain more than 89,400,000 board feet of lumber. Is this the one from Avatar? Oh, well done.
1: Oh, Look at that. Yes. Home tree. I don't know tree. the name of it though. The tree. They just called it, it home tree,
0: yeah. Well, okay. the tree of life oh, wow. would be different, um, but the yeah, home tree. So that, yeah, it's so Yeah. Uh, Very yes. nice. Oh, right, okay, yes. Yeah. 89 <laughs> million board feet, yeah. It's so um, much. Question number three. <clears throat> uh, biennial blooming can be common across many trees, but this fictional tree might be said to experience bi-regial blooming. Perhaps this oh. is due in part to its albino nature.
1: Oh my God. Oh,
0: This one's Bi-egial. obscure.
1: bi I don't know bi- what regial. that would be. Bi-regial.
0: Regia. I think
1: oh. Oh my gosh, okay. Uh, oh. Wait, what is regia? It, it's like a royalty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so. Oh, the uh, White Tree of Condor. No! Well done! There it is! It's <laughs> like, come on. I, I know there's some. The I know
0: you are Lord of the Rings fans <laughs> here, guys. Come on. <laughs> oh, I'm took me that long. <laughs>
2: uh,
1: I, I, I had it, I just couldn't figure out how to say it.
0: I don't know that yeah. by regial is actually a word. I just made that up. So I yes. love
1: it. yeah, that was good though. Yeah. Yeah. It, and we played a game just yesterday that we did a similar thing where Alex comes up with um, binomial names and I try to figure out what they are. And Alex's use of Latin terms. I have to sit there and like, try to think, is this a real tree or is, or is he saying something that's in Latin that I just is, th- that is related it. to something completely different. So
0: absolutely. Yeah. 11th grade English comes back in handy Well done. Element. All <laughs> right. Let's see. Question number four. Okay. these trees are tough to find because their street address has no name a couple of irish brokes like them and the mormons name them i think they're yucky uh, yes there he go yes. joshua tree in the yucca family well done
1: yeah oh my god i was like he's gonna get this i have to yell it right now the, <laughs> these
2: questions are really well worded i love them uh, 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 thank
0: you appreciate
2: that
1: i should have said uh, this, what is uh the oh, no i guess this isn't jeopardy this is just no, trivia. it's not jeopardy
0: <laughs> that's trademarked we can't do that
1: <laughs> okay, um, yeah, right?
0: <laughs> so this next one popular at a rave this tree loves black light but its invasive nature does oh. explain its Biblical plague-like name.
1: This is a black locust. Ah, there it is.
0: That's uh, it. Well done.
1: Was that
2: the wood that glows under black light? Yeah, yeah. one of them.
0: One of them, yes. Okay. Quite a few of them. Um, let's see. One of the highest-to-strength ratios of all trees, this royal was favored by Japanese merchants for tansu construction. one's a bit weird this royal i will tell you you have covered this tree Mm. Mm.
1: is it
0: suki no it is not
1: (laughs) interesting i was thinking it was going to be some spruce
0: it's quite invasive
1: it's quite invasive yes invasive in Not a tree, but. Not okay. Is it invasive in Japan or invasive in the United States?
0: Oh, good, good question. No, it's invasive. It's native to Japan, but it's invasive everywhere else.
1: Oh. Japanese merchants
0: use it for tonsu construction.
1: Ooh, I wish I had known what a tonsu is. It's a cabinet. I want (laughs) to say. I want to say tree of heaven.
0: Tree of no, unfortunately. The empress tree, or palowina.
1: Oh. oh! my gosh! I actually didn't know that was native to Japan.
0: There we go. See? Interesting. Kiri. Japanese kiri ah. is what they call it. So. Okay,
1: the... yeah. Well, actually, so we covered the jacaranda. I don't think we've covered that tree yet. You
0: have it covered the palowina? Really? I don't think we have.
1: I know we've certainly talked about it, so it's come up many different times.
0: It's a fascinating tree because
1: it's it's ring porous with
0: huge pores, so it's very, very light. And tansu were chests that were worn on the merchant's back because they traveled from town to town. So they built a cabinet out of this really lightweight wood, but it's also very, very strong because of that ring porous nature. Oh, wonderful. Wow. Okay. Okay. Listeners of the Lumber Update show will know this one. They should. Yeah. All right, uh, let's keep moving this. Um, Used for wooden bearings and propeller shafts, this wood would never be accused of being a witch, like most woods,
1: or ducks. Is this, I mean, witch hazel is what I think. Nope. Dang it, okay.
0: Sorry, it's a Monty Python reference.
2: I, I yeah I I'm focused on the reference and I've I've <laughs> forgotten the first part of the
0: question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let, let's can we can we for, get that again?
0: Yes, it's used for wooden bearings or propeller shafts. This wood would <laughs> never be accused of being a witch like most woods or ducks. Is this sick of spruce? No, that's a good guess though. Ooh, the important the important part you're forgetting is is what, um, What? In, in Monty Python speak, what does wood and what do both wood and ducks do?
1: Ooh, Alex, well, I'm they, surprised they,
0: you. They float, right? Yes, they do. So this wood does not. Ooh, is it ironwood? Uh, well, technically that doesn't float. That's not what I'm going for, though. <laughs> Lignum Vitae.
1: Lignum Vitae. Oh, yes. that is like a very yeah. hard wood. Super, what super hard that? wood is
0: used for wooden bearings and like shafts for uh, ship propellers and such. Um, yeah, it's about a 4,800 foot pound Janka hardness. It's one of the hardest woods on the planet.
2: Whoa. Guaya yeah. Khan, I'm seeing, is the, the common name.
0: Yeah.
1: Wow! Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, that was that was a good one. I am not. That one was obscure. That, I admit
0: that one was mm-hmm. obscure. The Monty Python thing. I thought maybe Alex would he'll hone in on the Monty Python thing. So yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. This is from my own history. Um, you might prank the tourists, or you might settle in for a lunch of poi eaten off this tree, but this tropical native won't be found, Oh, idea. I think
1: this is the Koa. Oh, so close. Oh, no. Right region. Yeah. Endemic to the
0: same islands. Uh, it won't be found. Oadea. Oh, Oadea.
1: Oh, God. Okay. But it will be There's bad. one that we covered, Alex, or that we didn't yeah. cover, that we talked about, but I don't remember what it was called. Mmm.
2: The koa is the only Hawaiian tree I can think of. All right. Off the top
1: of my head. Yeah, there's another one that grows um, more in the volcanic areas.
0: Yes, yes, it loves basalt. Oh, gosh, I can't
1: believe that we can't think of this. Oh, no, I don't know if I'll get there.
0: Ding, ding. It's the Ohia tree. It won't oh, be found Oadea, but it will be uh, found Oahia. Oh my gosh. <laughs> this,
1: is, this is a
0: prank that, uh, I, I grew up in Hawaii, and um, often the locals, they would prank the tourists and the military guys, and they would say, let's, uh, you've gotta go see the magical Ohia tree. And they would make you get up at like three o'clock in the morning and hike way out onto this cliff, and they'd say, there it is, and it'd just be just like a regular tree. You're like, What's, what is it? It's like, well, that tree's Oadea, and this tree's is all here. Now imagine saying that with like a thick Hawaiian accent. You know, that listen, brother, it's not all there; it's all here. You know, so yeah, the Ohia tree know. is often a prank. But most, if, if you go into like a poke bowl place or you get poi, they will serve it on an on an here plank. Okay. Where you'll find wow, it. interesting.
1: That is so good to know.
0: Love that. And, uh, mango, Alex, is another good one from Hawaii. Koa, Ohia, and Mango. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, I wouldn't ask this fictional tree for an aspirin. It packs a punch and will block your way to any mischief
1: you want to manage. Oh, yeah. This is the Whomping Willow. Aha, uh-huh. well done. Ah,
2: uh, yes, Casey. Yes. Wow. Another yes.
0: one. I, I had to say In quickly
1: or else Alex is certainly going to get it. <laughs> yes. The salix
0: genre. It's where we get our aspirin, right? That's right. Well, let's see here. Um, a colorful need, a find something that all people need, comes from this tree's
1: foliage. Sadly, the trunk is discarded. Mm, it's just, it's so sad. The truffle Casey, tree. Casey
0: that uh, yes. Like, yeah. it,
1: it is a truffle Casey
2: has that uh, tattooed on his body. I do. Oh, that's
1: right. Oh, there we go.
0: Okay, last question. Okay. Je suis. Ich bin. Watashi wa. Sono. I am.
1: Wow. Ooh. (laughs) How about, I am. It is Groot. Yes. (laughs)
2: Casey, you crushed me. Oh, my God. Yeah.
1: Alex literally brought that up yesterday to say we don't talk about Groot enough.
0: Yeah. If you're going to talk about trees to the stars, you can't forget Groot.
1: Oh, what a good question. Oh, my God. Well done.
0: That was fun.
2: <laughs> oh. I was honestly, uh, and this is not a, uh, you know, uh, uh, I, I will just say I was honestly distracted by how creative these questions were. <laughs> I appreciate that.
1: There we go. See, was, I don't see any creativity. I'm just like, like, cut it out. Yeah. What, do you, what is what is what's the question? Let me get to Casey it. Casey just wants gotta to win. Gotta win. Just, that's all. That's all it is. Yeah,
0: that's right. <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that. The competitive arborist. That'll be your next. Right. That'll be your biography title. Oh, that'd be so good. <laughs> well
1: done.
0: Guys, that's all I have, that was fantastic. I I feel like we could keep talking. I've got more things that I could talk about. Uh... But uh, it's just, it's so much fun to, to talk to you both. I'm having a bit of a fanboy moment, I will admit, cause I'm a, just a huge fan of your show. And I will close in saying, if you, if you don't listen to Completely Arbitrary, you should. In fact, you probably should sponsor them on Patreon because they have yeah. cool stickers. In fact, Alex, well done. I just got your uh, sticker in the mail yesterday.
2: Oh, lovely, um, thank you. Uh, the okay. kaiomaki.
0: Thank you, yeah. It's very, I don't know, I feel like you were channeling anime. On that uh, or maybe Pokemon <laughs> um, the, the graphic is, is very very Pokemon esque it's lovely so yeah yes thank you I appreciate so that definitely you got, how do how do people find you guys if they want they want more Alex and Casey goodness
2: sure any old way I mean uh, we, we're on Apple Podcast Spotify all any uh, podcast app you would you would use uh, if you search for completely arbore trary and uh, uh-huh. it is phonetic as funny mm-hmm. as
1: that is as much as we can yeah yeah and, and uh, you can also you can follow our, us on instagram if you want yeah. or you can get us uh find us on our website you can pretty much just google us and you'll 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 find something
0: absolutely yeah arbitrary pod i think on that's right instagram yeah I, I follow you i don't know what it is it just shows <laughs> up
1: we forget all the time too so we're, we're all on the same page an arbitrary
2: you can find everything about us on there
0: Yep, and they've got some great merch too, so go check it out. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, this has been so much fun. Um, I'm going to come up with 20 more questions, and I'll send them to you.
1: Hey, that sounds good. We'll, we'll be here. And we'll, uh, we'll go through it with you. Absolutely. Well, yeah, thanks I, very much I for, for having can tell Alex
0: Shannon. is chomping, or uh, Casey's chomping into bed. He's just like, give me more, give me more.
1: <laughs> give me more. I'm going to push my meeting. Let's keep going. <laughs>
2: Thank you so thanks. much for having us, Shannon. We really appreciate it.